Hi. Welcome to Forbes India's The Startup Friday's podcast. I'm Hari Arakli, tech editor at Forbes India. In these podcasts, we'll bring you conversations with entrepreneurs who are finding opportunities in solving a variety of problems in multiple areas. We'll also talk to investors from venture capital companies and other folks who are playing a significant role in India's maturing startup scene. You can find a new episode every Friday evening. You can also find us live on Instagram every Friday morning. Stay safe and happy listening. Our guest today is Anshuman Bapna, co-founder and CEO of Terra.do, an online school that offers an immersive deep dive into all the important aspects of climate change with the purpose of equipping professionals to take action and become part of the climate change solution. Before starting Terra.do last year, Anshuman has multiple startups to his credit, the first of which he started while he was still studying at the Indian Institute of Technology Bombay where he graduated in 2000. Anshuman also has an MBA from Stanford University and I believe he's joining us from Stanford today. Immediately before Terra.do he was chief product officer at Make My Trip and iBibo. Terra.do is currently backed by investors including Rain Matter Capital and Bnext. Anshuman, fantastic to have you with us today. Uh, welcome. Thanks for having me, Hari. Uh, looking forward to chatting with you about climate, especially uh, in these times. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's uh, start with uh, your own entrepreneurial journey for a bit, which uh, I guess will naturally bring us to what you're doing currently. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, you know your 20 plus uh, years of you know entrepreneurial adventure, starting with you know the very first one. Sure. So Hari, I uh, grew up in small town UP. Uh, the biggest place that I grew up in uh, was uh, Saharanpur, and then uh, went to the big bad city of Bombay uh, for my undergrad in 1996. And then about uh, a year or two before I was graduating, it seemed like uh, uh, I just it, there was uh, entrepreneurship was kind of in the air, at least if not in India, then in the rest of the world. And um, I spent a lot of time trying to get. Uh, entrepreneurs on campus starting a business plan competition there they eventually started in incubator uh, at the campus and then it eventually became well why am i not eating my own dog food so then uh, in about uh, end of 1999 in my final year i and two other friends started this company called righthalf.com which was very typical for the times a crazy internet idea very uh, uh, internet 1.0 and uh, then over the next couple of years uh, we made all the classic mistakes that you can imagine 19 year olds would make and uh, then at the end of it managed to uh, exit to a silicon valley startup then i was at business school at stanford for a few years trying to figure out what to do with my life and by that time it felt like i was uh, burnt out enough from starting companies <laughs> that i didn't want to ever go back and start companies again So and lo and behold uh, I ended up uh, joining uh, a consulting company for some time uh, in New York and then I was at Google for, for for some time but while I was doing all of that I was also running a non-profit in India called Democracy Connect that used to work with uh, elected politicians uh, across all party lines to try to figure out how to get constituency development done uh, and basically connect professionals like myself to uh, elected representatives and get them to work on hard problems which as you will see has a strong uh, connect to what i do right now except instead of politics it's climate uh then uh, my daughter was born and we realized that uh, believe it or not this is the best time to start another company 
So my wife and I uh, quit our jobs, moved back from New York to Bangalore in 2009 uh, to start an online travel company with one of my co-founders uh, called MyGola.com, which is a travel planning startup. This time we made all the mistakes that uh, a 30-year-old would make. Uh, and uh, But eventually we managed to have an exit where Make My Trip bought us in 2015 and I became the chief product officer. And uh, I thought I would hang around for a couple of years and then uh, go out and start another company. But as you know, the Indian internet uh, scene was just completely going off uh, in this massive way. And uh, at Make My Trip, I had the privilege of having a ringside view to all of that. So four years uh, passed in a jiffy. And then uh, about two and a half, three years ago almost, there was a bit of a midlife crisis. My wife decided to come back to the US to uh, do her PhD. And I started thinking, uh, what do I want to do next? And that question very quickly became, what is worth working on next? And uh, climate change had been one of the things at the top of my list, so started looking at that a lot more closely. And that's how Terra started. And I can deep dive into that a little bit more as we go further. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we, we spoke uh, a couple of weeks back uh, briefly uh, for a tech briefing at uh, Forbes India. Uh, you uh, mentioned uh, talking to a lot of people, reading a lot of books, etc. Uh, tell us a bit about, uh, you know, the takeaways from that research and how you kind of zeroed in on climate change. Yeah, and I hope uh, what I'm going to say next is going to resonate with a lot of people who are here online right now, which is I was very much in the same camp about two years ago where it seemed like there was this massive uh, global problem. But it also feels uh, felt so big and so daunting that it felt like there wasn't really a way that I could uh, uh, either have an impact or even find my own place in it. So the question, the motivating question for me was, what can I do with my skills that will potentially have an impact? And I started talking to as many people as I could. Uh, that's my primary way of learning, also reading as much as I could. And I was very wide open at that time. I spoke to people who were working on nuclear fusion. I spoke to people who were working on environmental justice and everything in between, and not just in India and the US, but uh, even more globally than that. And uh, there were two big things that jumped out at me. One was that uh, it felt like uh, there were suddenly many more people like me who were asking the same question uh, because what was really happening with the world with climate was become, was coming closer and closer to home. And it felt like uh, the challenge for all of them, including myself, was just to understand the space, to see how big this is, how vast this is, and to find their place in it. So that was one challenge. But I think the other was kind of the sense of injustice almost, this sense of complete disconnect as an outsider which was, it felt like, look, on one side, we've been talking about transforming everything we do. Uh, uh, we talking about how to change energy, agriculture, manufacturing, transportation, and whatnot. And yet the number of people working in climate seem to be at this measly 1 million, 2 million, depending on how you count. And this is one third of the world's GDP. Uh, we're not talking about transforming these over 100, 200 years, but in 10 to 20 years. And uh, one way or the other, we had to figure out a way to get 100 million people working in climate. So that 100 million number was kind of just stuck in my head. And uh, that combined with the fact that it was there was so much friction for people like me to get into climate, suggested that uh, maybe there's an internet business to be built out there, uh, something at internet scale that could uh, figure out a way to build a ramp for everyone outside climate to get into climate. And if you think of it for a second, it just seems like uh, if 100 million people are going to be working in climate, say, 10 years from now, then by definition, the vast majority of them are actually outside climate, like literally 99% of them. So somebody has to figure out a way to get all of them in and retrain them, reskill them, help them build their own professional networks, 
find job opportunities, find uh, startups that they could build out and whatnot. And that didn't exist at all, the entire ecosystem. So that's what we set out to build about a year ago at Terra. Hmm. Now tell us what uh, Terra.do itself is. So t- Terra.do is uh, an uh, online school and community for uh, anyone who's looking to solve for climate change. What we do is that we run uh, a bunch of different uh, online programs uh, where uh, you could learn uh, uh, from topics ranging from as widely as uh, how to invest in climate tech uh, or uh, how to do regenerative farming, how to get into the electric vehicle segment, how to uh, figure out what the hydrogen infrastructure of the future would look like and many more. So our, our goal is to, for this year, is to be the starting point for all climate learning for anyone on the planet. But what we're really building, Hari, is not uh, a Coursera for climate. That's not how I think of it. Uh, to me, that's a very limiting vision. Uh, and if that was the case, we would have called ourselves Terra.learn instead of Terra.do. Uh, for us, the, uh, the end goal is to transition people. And uh, so therefore, what we're really building is this uh, global professional network and community of uh, the most talented people across every single uh, discipline that you can imagine, all looking to work in climate, uh, interacting with people who are climate insiders and working with companies and organizations which are already in climate. So sometimes it feels like a, I mean, I don't, as an entrepreneur, I like elevator pitches. I like something that I can tell you, oh, we are like the X of Y, like the Uber of uh, dog walking, for example, right? Uh, I don't have a crisp, version of that yet. Sometimes I hear we are the LinkedIn for climate. Sometimes we hear we are the Stanford for climate. I don't know. I think we're building this new thing, which is a vertical, uh, vertically integrated talent stack. And the hope is that in a very short amount of time, we'll have millions of amazing people all working in climate in one place. And we can build all kinds of infrastructure above and below that after that. Mm. You, you have uh, talked about uh, climate change being both uh, our biggest crisis today and also a very large opportunity. Uh, I mean, I want to ask you more about the opportunity part of it, but uh, I guess it would help uh, to, you know, articulate the crisis part a bit more. I mean, I guess it's sinking in a little bit more now. There's much more scientific evidence and the inter-government panel also recently came out with its report and I saw that you had tweeted some of those, uh, you know, specific points that one should pay attention to. Uh, tell us about that a bit. What were the top takeaways for you from the IPCC's latest uh, report? Yeah, no, I think uh, maybe I'll just uh, step back for a second and talk about uh, what the crisis is all about. And I'm sure a lot of people listening in right now have uh, uh, a small to large familiarity with the problem already. But let me still kind of rephrase that. Uh, so one is that I think historically as a civilization, we've uh, been in this perfect weather climate period for the past 10 to 15,000 years. That hasn't really happened in human history for the past 2 million years. And yet, because of what we've done in the past 150 years post-industrialization, we are shooting ourselves out of that comfort zone where uh, all planetary systems, all climatic systems were very stable. What happens after that, nobody knows. And we've known that a lot of uh, really mass extinction events in the biosphere have happened when these kind of things have really gone up and down quite a bit. So it's a, so that's, that's kind of the highest level framing of it. I think the second level of framing of it that I kind of think about is that uh, this is also a massive case of uh, uh, haves and have nots or uh, the classic inequalities that we've always had persisted in our world, where often 
individuals, uh, uh, segments of societies, countries entirely, who did not really contribute to the carbon emissions problem, or frankly, the massive resource usage problem, are the ones who are going to suffer the most. So uh, climate change impacts are going to affect countries like India, uh, countries like Bangladesh, a lot more than they would affect countries that uh, maybe were part of the first industrialized economies. And uh, within those countries, it will be people who are the most marginalized, uh, farmers, smallholder farmers reliant on monsoons, uh, people living along uh, coastal uh, areas that will have a lot more uh, 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 typhoons come in, uh, sea levels rise, etc., who will suffer the most and who have the least ability to do something about it. So that's the other framing, the inequality part of it. And I think the third one, and I'm still talking about the crisis part, and I'll get to the opportunity in just a bit. But the uh, I think the uh, third thing is that uh, we have this very limited time window, and uh, so much so that it is literally your and my, and hopefully everyone who's listening in right now, our generation that will figure out what we do and how we cross this chasm that human civilization has ahead of us. It's literally our generation and, and the generation coming right behind us. So uh, the IPCC report, which is uh, which just came out a couple of days back, has uh, is, is just this, right now, it's just a scientific part of the report. There is gonna be more uh, uh, parts of it coming out uh, next year. But this one is completely unequivocal about what a challenge we have. So my biggest takes example uh, from uh, the IPCC report are, one is that uh, for, for the longest time, uh, we were not entirely sure uh, that uh, whether climate change is happening, first of all, and second is whether it is caused by humans. Fortunately, the previous IPCC reports uh, put paid to that. So that, that is not a problem. Like, people understand that really well, the vast majority of us. What was not clear was, is it here and now? And this is something I keep hearing from uh, my friends and well-wishers and so on, where it feels like climate change feels like sometimes a problem of the future that at some point in time, we'll need to start really, really worrying about it. But I think what the IPCC report does beautifully is that uh, it has uh, essentially taken uh, this massive new development in uh, in scientific discipline called attribution science, which is how do you take, uh, see all the extreme events that are happening around us, whether it's uh, extreme heat scenarios, extreme cyclones and flooding and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and similar such uh, uh, scenarios, and see what contribution climate change has to that. Because those kind of catastrophes are a lot more here and now for us because they're on our TV screens. They happen to our uh, network of people that we know of. And there, I think the IPCC report is just fantastic in terms and scary in terms of, uh, of articulating, for example, that uh, we, we always used to have these 50-year extreme heat events. It's essentially extreme heat events across the world that was supposed to happen once in 50 years. At the current level of warming that we are headed to within the next which, uh, within the next few uh, uh, de- decades, uh, we're talking about almost nine to 10 times intensification of those one in 50 year events. So imagine the same one in 50 year event that you would ch- tell your grandchildren now happening literally every four or five years. And that is the world that we are headed into, unfortunately, already. So that's a crisis part in uh, uh, that's one. Uh, but to me, also as a, as a science person, is to, it's fantastic to see how far attribution science has gotten, where we can actually go up in newspaper, in mainstream media and talk about how this particular cyclone was caused primarily because of climate change. That was not possible earlier. I think the other is that, uh, uh, unfortunately, is that 30 years of, of the, the next 30 years of worsening warming is already baked in. Uh, and that is actually really disheartening at, at one level. 
which is that it's almost impossible now to avoid the 1.5 degree centigrade increase in global warming, average global temperatures uh, ahead of us. And therefore, it means that for the next 30 years, we're only going to see intensification of disasters. And the IPCC report is quite unequivocal about that. So that's, again, a very uh, 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 terrible thing to, to know with, with, with so much certainty now. But there is, and this is the hopeful part of the report, which is that there's still a very narrow path that we could potentially traverse. And that narrow path is one in which we have very rapid reduction in uh, emissions uh, from now until the next 30 years, starting as soon as now, but really intensifying after 2025. And if we do that, then what we could do is to stop potential warming beyond 2050 uh, and maybe even bring it down a little bit below the 1.5 degree centigrade, depending on how much progress we make in, say, carbon capture technologies. So that's kind of the sum total of the IPCC report from a scientific standpoint that I, I would say are the biggest takeaways. Mm. Uh, just as a related uh, point before uh, we get into the opportunity part, uh, a lot of people talk about uh, getting to net zero. Uh, I thought it might help to just uh, you know, understand uh, from someone like you what this whole idea of net zero is and why it's important. Yeah. So net zero is uh, the idea that uh, any entity uh, it could be companies, it could be states, it could be countries, uh, will, uh, as they grow, will figure out a way to make sure that their net carbon emissions are zero. So what that means is they'll still grow, they'll still have uh, a carbon footprint, they'll still emit uh, carbon in all kinds of different ways, but they'll also figure out a way to reduce that or even offset that. And what does offset mean? You could potentially go, for example, plant a ton of forests and uh, the carbon that, that gets sucked uh, out of the atmosphere because of that is something that you can count against the emissions that you have done. So the good news is that, uh, first of all, net zero used to be this very controversial uh, topic, uh, uh, but is now get to the point where there's pretty large mainstream acceptance of that. Uh, controversial because it felt like a moral hazard. It felt like, well, we're just giving people the license to pollute. And all they'll do is to plant some forest somewhere. But in reality, I think everyone's kind of waking up, especially governments, to the fact that uh, net zero has to mean uh, a lot of different things. The good news, first of all, is that roughly uh, two-thirds of the world's GDP uh, has committed to some net zero goal, which is either 2050 or 2060, which is great. Uh, but I think what that also means is that uh, people are now understanding that the way you get there is by three or four different mechanisms. So... The very first most prominent one is to change where our energy comes from. And the answer for that, fortunately, is a very simple one, which is to shift to renewables. And uh, I think the major amazing thing that has happened in the past 10 years is that renewables have become cost effective in almost every single scenario that you can think of. So therefore, there's a clear economic incentive to also move to renewables. And that's why you've seen the Indian government in India in general really doubling down on that and making significant progress on that. So that's one, how you get to net zero. Um, second is if you look at the corporation level or company level or industry level, which is that you reduce the carbon intensity of what you produce. And the way you do that is everything from energy efficiency to using different kinds of processes and so on. And there, if you, there's again an economic argument for that because reducing carbon intensity could often mean more uh, smarter usage of resources as well. So therefore, there is a clear advantage to the bottom line as well. So that's number two. Uh, number three is offsets. The example that I gave you of uh, potentially planting forests or sucking carbon out of the air. 
Um, that's the third one. But I also want to highlight that uh, it's not just this. So, for example, if you're, doing, if you're, if you're Levi's and uh, you're thinking about net zero, your definition might be slightly different. And you might, for example, think about your supply chain instead. So Levi's has, for example, in the apparel industry, which is a very large carbon emitter and frankly polluter in many ways, uh, they could start thinking about what their supply chain looks like, how much, and they could potentially go out to this uh, to their vendors and get them to adopt uh, practices that uh, uh, lower the carbon footprint in, in dramatic ways. Same thing if you're in finance, if you're an investment banker, uh, what is the your definition of uh, uh, of what uh, something like net zero might be? Is that you will first stop uh, financing projects that take fossil fuel out of the ground, and a bunch of companies like J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley have committed to stopping financing of all such projects going forward. There's a lot more to be done, uh, but that's the definition of how you could get to net zero, and I think it's a powerful uh, uh, definition. It has some gaps and holes, but the fact that the world is world at least now has a common language from governments to corporations to individuals means that there is something that we can all all rally behind. So I'm happy to kind of look the other way a little bit on, well, all the nuances of how that can be gamed and so on and on. But there is this common vision that we all have that we can get to, which is very powerful in these times. So now tell us about uh, the opportunity part uh, that you want uh, Terra also to play a role in. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, let me kind of split the opportunity part uh, into two. And both of them are as important. And I feel sometimes the second one gets a little bit less of a less of attention, especially with, with people like me. And I'll tell you what that is. So first of all, the economic side of it, like what's the economic opportunity of what's really happening here? Um, so I think uh, the and the various estimates. But uh, I mean, as I said, we have, we have to fundamentally change how we do energy and all these different sectors. So what that means is that there, there is roughly about, I mean, by different estimates, 30 to $40 trillion in capital that needs to be redeployed uh, across all of these industrial sectors in just the next 10 years, right? And $35 trillion is roughly, just to give you a sense, a little bit uh, more than uh, 40% of the world's annual GDP. So you're essentially talking about a complete upheaval and a new way of doing things across all of these different sectors. And every time there's an upheaval, uh, there is an economic opportunity and that economic opportunity is not for the incumbents alone. In fact, it is for people, uh, hopefully, that, that are listening to a, to a, uh, to a live uh, session like this. Startup entrepreneurs, people who are just getting uh, building out these new businesses. And I think there's a lot to be done there. That's one part of it. I think the other is that uh, if you look at each of these uh, different sectors, so if you look at, for example, and I'll just pick up one, say, let's pick up uh, food. Right. So food is a pretty large uh, uh, emitter of carbon, both directly and indirectly. Uh, so directly, just to give you a sense, is uh, how, for example, how much land is used to grow food. And especially if you're uh, if you're taking if you're uh, especially proteins. Right. So and not the unfortunately in India, we are, our protein sources are still predominantly vegetarian, but in the rest of the world, they're not. And so therefore, the amount of land use that uh, beef or chicken or, or, or pork, for example, does, it's just incredible. And there is an opportunity to potentially invent new ways to invent, to, to essentially get proteins out into the market. So that's one side of it. Um, but the other side also that we need to keep in mind is that 40% uh, of food gets wasted across the world, roughly speaking. Right? So there's massive food waste. And that 40% is actually terrible to see. Uh, it's 40% in places like India because of how broken the supply chain is. 
and it's 40% in places like America because of how wasteful consumer uh, uh, consumption is. So there is an opportunity to change behavior, to build supply chains, etc., just in food alone, which I think are really, really interesting. So each of these sectors are transforming. So I think there is there's, there's, there's an economic opportunity to do that. And I think if you look at just India for a second, in a way, the uh, uh, both India, both the US and China essentially committed a $2 trillion energy infrastructure mistake, where what they've done is that they've built these massive pipelines, processing plants, etc., etc., which are focused on the fossil fuel world. And imagine if the fossil fuel world gets capped off their knees as it is being right now. I don't know if you've seen the stock prices of oil, oil, oil and gas majors, but if that happens, you have this $2 trillion of stranded assets, uh, whether it's coal, whether it's natural gas, whether it's uh, oil. India doesn't need to make that mistake. India can, just like it leapfrogged the, uh, into the mobile revolution for, for, for communications, it could leapfrog into the renewables revolution without having to build out that infrastructure. So I think there's a real opportunity for policymakers, for citizens to, to be part of that. Now that's the, on the economic side. I think on the um, social side, uh, there is, uh, to me, it also feels like it's, it's it, that old saying, right? Which is that never uh, uh, waste a crisis. So if you look at the crisis that we're in right now, uh, a big part of it is the, uh, the unequal way uh, in which uh, development happened, in which uh, how resources were distributed and where power structures, et cetera, lie right now. So is there an opportunity to use the climate crisis to potentially fix that? And I'll give, and I'll give you some examples. Uh, now, let's look at, for example, our cities, right? So our cities, we have built them to be a lot more car-friendly, uh, and therefore we, we're seeing the consequences in, in, in all of our Indian cities right now, right? Our AQI levels are through the roof and all the time. Now, is it, can we use the climate crisis to potentially just fundamentally change the basis of our transportation? So go for public transport in this massive way and have that be powered by, electric, uh, by electricity. Um, have individual transport be powered by, by electric vehicles as well. So we have the, the, um, the chance to now fix this, uh, this, uh, this problem that we created ourselves uh, many de decades ago when we were not thoughtful about our urban planning. If you go to our villages uh, and uh, if you look at, for example, reforestation, now, there is the world of reforestation where, and this is a very Silicon Valley kind of way of thinking about reforestation sometimes, which I find extremely annoying, which is how about we take drones and these drones have a million seeds in them and these million seeds just like, like pump all these seeds into the soil and some 10, 10% of them actually survive and therefore we have a forest. Well, you and I know that's not how forests work. Forests are deeply integrated with the communities that nurture those forests around them. And... So is there a, a way where we can start, for example, rebuilding forests uh, that advantage the local community? And a classic example that I saw was that uh, this company, which is uh, trying to figure out uh, called Terra Formation. Uh, so a similar name, Terra, uh, started by actually Reddit's uh, ex-CEO, uh, which uh, what it does is that they also are focused on like this automated way of planting as many seeds as possible. But the way they do it is that they create these native seed banks inside local communities and figure out a way that whatever is the uh, economic output of that forest advantages the local community dramatically. Now, that slows down potentially their scale up because they can't just like buy land or, or can just like shoot pods, seed pods into, into deforested land. But I think it creates forests that will last not 10 years, but will last 100 years and hopefully even more. So that's the kind of opportunity that we have to fundamentally rethink uh, what we do. And, I'm, and I'll just kind of shut up after this, but um, 
Uh, I think one of the genius uh, of uh, what America did in the past five years to completely change the debate on uh, climate inside the inside the country is to reframe climate as a jobs opportunity. And uh, uh, so when you see Biden going up talking about like he is literally like you will be sick of hearing him talking about, well, climate means jobs, climate equal to jobs, jobs equal to climate. And that's because that is exactly the transformation that we're talking about. And these jobs can be created in marginalized communities. They don't have to be, they don't have to go to people like you and I who are uh, alone. Uh, there is a 10x or 100x multiple that is possible for marginalized communities that could potentially be installing these solar plants, maintaining them, wind turbine technicians that could come from our ITI colleges and so on. So there's this massive reskilling that could be done, which is again a social opportunity in addition to an economic opportunity. Mm. Now, uh, tell us about uh, the, the flagship course uh, at uh, Terra.2. Uh, earlier on, you mentioned uh, uh, learning about the friction there was for people to enter climate change solutions in some way. So I, I guess your course is directly tackling that problem. So tell us about that a bit. Yeah, so we have this uh, our flagship course, is this 12-week online course, which is very global. So, and what that means is that we have roughly 25 plus countries in every one of our cohorts. And uh, it's also very eclectic in the backgrounds of people. So we have as many farmers as we have software engineers. Uh, we have as many investment bankers as we have reformed oil and gas executives in every one of our cohorts. And the reason why this horizontal program is, uh, is interesting, I think, in, is in two ways. One is to solve the learning problem. And the learning problem is essentially uh, what we've discovered is an ROI problem. Uh, and what I mean by that is that you have smart individuals, talented individuals, often mid-career, who are saying, look, this is the problem that I really want to spend time solving for. However, I have these professional skills and I want to find the highest ROI on those professional skills vis-a-vis -vis climate impact while still making sure that I... I have a paycheck that I can take back home. I am I'm, 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 I'm financially viable while doing this. And uh, the way you find out ROI is to get a landscape overview of where exactly are the real challenges in climate, which are potentially solvable in approximate time, which is that literally there are these uh, two or three bottlenecks in uh, this particular part of climate. There are these 45, 50 companies that are working there. There are these problem statements that need to be solved. And by the way, your skills are in software, your skills are in large project finance, for example. How do you apply them here? So that's the kind of thing that people want to learn and be able to choose from this massive landscape of climate solutions that they can be part of. That's one part of our uh, program. The other part is frankly, um, to find a community. Uh, one of the things that I got, uh, I mean, I really was struck by in the beginning was when I started out was that it felt lonely. It felt hurry like I was kind of the only crazy person in my peer group or one of the very few people in my peer group who was thinking something like this. And then it felt like, uh, oh my God, you're now trying to do, be this Jholawadi nonprofit uh, who just wants to kind of uh, solve poverty or climate change and so on. And sure, that is the case. But I, I, I also think that I want to be part of a professional community that is uh, trying to grow professionally, trying to be economically successful, trying to build really large scale businesses. And there weren't really people that I could reach out to at that time who were in my first or second degree network. So what we're also building is this large global community where you can find kindred souls across all of these different dimensions and uh, learn from them, uh, find climate insiders who've already been where you were three, four years ago, kind of like where I am right now, be able to network with them and then find the right kind of opportunities for you to work on. So that's what this entire program is all about.
uh, who should uh, take this course? And by the way, uh, for folks who are watching and listening, uh, they have a very nice uh, quiz, uh, a simple one, but a very uh, well thought out one, which you can take in five minutes and figure out whether this course is for you. Uh, but I still ask you, who, who should take this uh, course? And what are some of the prerequisites uh, for them to benefit from the course? Yeah. So for Hari, first of all, I'm impressed that you actually did the legwork in trying to apply and do the quiz and so on. So thank you for, for, for making the effort. Uh, so uh, as I said, we have one horizontal program, uh, but then we have all these vertical programs on top of that. So for example, if you're trying to get into the electric vehicles space, then uh, there's a completely different prerequisite for that. Uh, but on the, in the horizontal programs, there's only one thing that we're selecting for. And that one thing is, are you really serious about using your professional skills to work in climate now, as opposed to, well, when I grow old or well, when I get out of my uh, uh, very rocket ship startup two years from now when it exits, et cetera, et cetera. If you're here and now uh, ready to work, use your professional skills, we want you in the program. Uh, it's our job to make sure that if you come from, no matter what background you come from, we get you up to speed on climate science on climate regulation, policy, climate hard tech, as quickly as possible. And I think that's what we take pride in, which is that you can come from any background. As long as your intent is to work in climate, this is the right program for you. And that's the only thing that the application process checks for. We're not trying to be this elite, elite school. And that's why I kind of bristle a little bit at the Stanford for climate kind of a connotation, which is that, oh, only the selected few will get in. Well, that's not how climate gets solved. Right. The way climate gets solved is that everyone who desires to use their professional skills should be in. So that's the only thing that we check for in our application process. Hmm. Uh, give us a sense of uh, some of the some of the experts uh, who will be involved in teaching this course. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so we have uh, uh, it's an interesting mix. In fact, uh, we have two kinds of people. So one is what we call instructors. They're like think of them like teaching assistants. These are people that you would be uh, speaking with on almost a daily basis as you are going through any of these programs. And then we have what you would, the world would call experts or faculty, etc. So let me talk about the first one first, because that often gets short shrift. Uh, one of our uh, instructors just came back uh, from a three month trip uh, in the Pacific Ocean, where she's an oceanographer and uh, was looking at the North Pacific gyre, which is basically this, you must have heard of this massive garbage patch in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, her PhD area, uh, research area, is what kind of marine life gets attracted to, what kind of an ecosystem develops in uh, ecosystems like this inside the ocean. So she is going to be one of your teaching assistant as opposed to kind of uh, a, a faculty in the program alone, right? And she can be a faculty too. So that's a really high quality set of uh, people who are uh, holding your hand as you go through this climate journey. Um, on the teaching side, we have on one end, we have someone like, uh, a Matt Eggers. So Matt Eggers is uh, an investor at Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is the which is Bill Gates uh, or so-called Bill Gates uh, uh, climate fund, two billion dollar fund, the world's largest climate fund actually. And uh, he's been a veteran of the clean tech 1.0 boom and bust, and now double down uh, in the in the in the current uh, uh, ramp up. And he talks about what worked, what didn't work across a bunch of different really deep tech sectors. That's on one side. But on the other side, we have someone like a Harish Hande. Uh, I don't know how many people have uh, know of him, but they should. So Harish is the uh, founder of this organization called Selco, uh, and uh, based out of Bangalore. Incredible work, and he's a Maxisse Award winner as well, which is like the Asian Nobel Prize. 
And uh, his whole view into the entire quote-unquote climate problem is with a energy poverty lens. So he is not, oh, he's not talking about emissions. Uh, he's not talking about, uh, he's, he's talking about, as he's talking as much about emissions as he's talking about patriarchy or kind of this whole IIT run, uh, we know better than you kind of a system that uh, we often import and tell uh, rural, people who live in rural areas that we know better. So it's just mind bending to actually be in a conversation with him. Uh, and that's the kind of universe of, uh, of uh, these are the kinds of experts that we have who come into each of these different uh, programs. Uh, two examples of uh, people who have already taken this course and what they went on to do after that. Sure, yeah. Um, um, one example is uh, this uh, person who, is, who was a hardware engineer at Apple for a long time and was trying to figure out how to, what's the most effective place that uh, he could be in climate solutions. Ended up uh, after the program starting a company uh, called Flying Forests. And uh, what they were doing was essentially using drones to monitor mangrove forests for on behalf of local communities uh, who would then get paid by donors across the world for preserving those forests, for those mangrove forests. So uh, uh, it's a classic example of, uh, and what I love about this example is that uh, we stress a lot in our programs about not just mitigation, the sexy aspects of mitigation, like how to do carbon capture, all these cool tech, etc., but also adaptation, which is, well, how does this benefit uh, local communities? How does it benefit? How does it change the way we've uh, lived this un in this unequal world? So uh, Ning, this person, he has built uh, this kind of a company to solve for that. Uh, that's one example I would give. The other one is uh, uh, Dipankar. So Dipankar uh, and his wife, uh, she's an architect. Uh, they were part of the program and he started a nonprofit uh, called uh, Good Eco Living, which is uh, working in Pondicherry in the Oroville area, uh, working with a bunch of different uh, uh, nonprofits there to build disaster resilient housing for uh, uh, for the lowest economic segments. And, uh, and because he is kind of, in his mind, he knows that uh, one of the hardest hit would be the marginalized communities. And so therefore he's trying to build kind of this, this company and it's a nonprofit that will figure out a way to build massive levels of housing, uh, which will be disaster resilient for these uh, individuals. Hmm. Uh, from uh, looking at your course, I mean, I got the sense and also through your website that uh, if folks bring a certain level of uh, professional experience already uh, behind them, they would benefit more from your flagship course. That said, a lot of young people would also be looking at, uh, you know, career options in climate change as awareness increases. Uh, so, and, and if possible, beyond the academic realm. I mean, uh, scientific research, of course, is one area, but uh, in terms of business, startup, technology, and so on, uh, maybe you can talk about one company that you find is doing really interesting work, uh, you know, in the area of climate change, maybe climate tech and so on, which would give us a sense of the kind of things that young people can get into. Yeah, no, there, there are tons and tons and tons. And maybe I'll just pick up a, a couple from uh, India alone. So um, one of the companies that I really like is uh, Blue Sky. So what these guys do is that they're building uh, uh, an, an, like an API for all environmental data. So what they do is that they take satellite data, they take ground sensor data and combine that using machine learning to build an API that any person in the world could use now or any organization could use 
used to figure out where polluting sources are, where carbon emissions are coming from, even at the factory level, potentially. And very useful for, say, for example, uh, uh, investment bankers. And what they're looking for is uh, uh, people uh, who are uh, as good, for example, with uh, uh, with uh, data sets and AI and, and on the software side, as on the business development side, uh, young folks who can potentially go out and uh, try to first identify data sets, but also work uh, uh, to get companies to start looking at these kind of solutions a lot more closely and start reporting them. That's one example. Um, another one, uh, uh, I mean, uh, so, so many of them, especially on the electric vehicle side, there's like literally so many uh, interesting companies in India that are coming up right now. Uh, but maybe I'll pick something a little uh, off field from that. There's a company called Graviki. And what these guys do is that they take uh, pollutants, uh, essentially carbon, uh, out of the air and convert that into industrial products. And uh, so they, I think they were, MIT had honored them some years back as kind of the most interesting innovations. But uh, they, I'm assuming they, they have to go out and, for example, work with a ton of industrial companies and put their solution on top of their smokestacks. Now that's that's a kind of challenge which uh, uh, they would love to get young people involved, uh, uh, come in and do research, to do business development, etc. So just two examples, but there's so many more, so many more, and there'll be so many more going forward. Okay, uh, we are coming pretty close to uh, the end of the time that we have, but uh, I have a few quick questions, call it rapid fire if you like, just to give our viewers and listeners a flavor of the human being behind uh, beyond the professional. So, so here's the first one. Uh, tell us about one thing in your career that is not there on your official resume. <laughs> um, I, in my hubris of knowing what the world wants, once went to Vietnam to try to sell LED lights to them uh, to where there was no electricity. And I was shooed off because uh, by the time I reached those remote villages, they had already figured out how they built their own homegrown turbine that would work with all the fast flowing streams in the northern part of Vietnam. And they had electricity like generated by themselves. They didn't want my puny white LED light that could charge with the sun and so on. They're like, yeah, just like go back. So I went back. So that's kind of the tail between my legs. That's one example. Okay. Professionally, uh, one person who has left a deep impression on you and why? Hmm. I think uh, Nandan Nilikani. And uh, so Nandan is an alum from my school. He was actually the person that I pitched to my very first startup 20 years ago. He was in the room at that time. And I've just been so amazed by uh, his combination of obviously what he did with Infosys back in the day. I mean, to me, I, I started my company maybe not too many years after Infosys started. Um, and yet it feels like by the time I started, Infosys had already completely changed the game in a 1990s India, which is a tough place to crack. That's one innings. And then he has his other innings as a, a technocrat, as someone who's actually figured out, uh, not the easy way, the hard way, how to get the political machinery to move on large projects and something at the scale of Aadhaar. And I don't know how many people know, but that uh, he also um, contested elections and was roundly thrashed. Right. So it wasn't so. And it, he didn't just like therefore say, you know what? I have my billions and let me go back and do whatever I do, uh, enjoy my life. He just went back and doubled down on his insights and he's doing so much incredible work. Uh, I just feel that uh, uh, like if if I could get two to three careers inside my own life, which are even like one tenth as successful 
as his i think it's a i would i would just love that one book that you keep returning to <laughs> uh i don't know how many people have read this but it's it's, a, it's not an easy book it's moby dick and uh it's yeah exactly called mishmail and uh, that book has so much about uh, man's man's relationship with nature and with themselves that uh, i realized that in my second innings and as i think about climate and i think about the biosphere i think about my place in it there are passages that i have read multiple times that i go back and say oh my god this is what he was talking about 200 years ago so it's an incredible book it's a tough slog to begin with but if you get through a little bit in the first 100 pages or so it's just the most incredible book i've read hmm. okay in one or two sentences uh, what does money mean to you ah and i wish i knew the answer to this hari when i was uh, 20 as opposed to when i became 40 finally <laughs> so at at 20 i grew up in a household where it felt like look money is equal to materialism so and don't be materialistic uh, want better things higher things and so on that's what i knew at 20 and therefore i kind of looked i, I kind of looked down upon money i think at uh, 40 i am beginning to realize that money could also mean a completely different thing which is financial freedom and actually just freedom right the freedom to kind of unshackle your brain uh, to do what you need to do and i wish i i knew that that uh, money could buy me freedom and if that was the case i would have probably thought about it differently in the earlier part of my career hmm. one important thing you never start your day without could be an activity a habit a beverage anything oh um i have two kids uh, i have a 7 year old boy and a 12 year old girl and they're just incredible i keep saying that i keep going back to them to get career advice from them that's how wise beyond their years i feel kids in general are and definitely these two and so my my morning activity just to kind of get up and see them in bed and kind of look at like pause wait for a few seconds just look at them and then start my day just super wonderful uh, your uh, favorite hack uh, to get yourself out of a funk oh um just go for a long long run preferably in the middle of the afternoon because then everything just literally like it feels like physically like all kinds of stuff is just evaporating outside of me into the ether so i just go for uh, maybe a 10k 15k in the in the middle of the afternoon and that just like seems to just bring back uh, a lot of the energy paradoxically last question uh, a city that you would love to live in new york for sure i mean i spent 4 years in new york i think that was uh, 80 years too less i think new york is basically bombay without all the friction and uh, it's just the most amazing city in the world i would i mean my my wife and i keep talking about how when we decide to become old and 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 uh, die off we would want to go back to new york okay excellent uh, we'll have to leave it there uh, and so many more questions but that's it for today uh, thank you again so much for making time uh, later in the night for you there uh, really appreciate it and we hope to keep conversation going Oh, no, likewise, Hari. Thank you for all the great questions, and uh, thank you for the work that you are doing, bringing all these uh, incredible stories to everyone. So that was Anshuman Bhatna, who is doing some really incredible work uh, at uh, Teradata Boot, uh, along with his two co-founders. Uh, that's it for uh, today's Startup Fridays conversation. I'll be back next week uh, with another entrepreneur. Until next week, uh, wherever you are, uh, I hope you're staying safe and doing well. 
Uh, have a wonderful Friday and a great weekend ahead.